Thank you. Thank you. We are going to talk about satanic strategies today. We're looking at the book of Acts, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, don't panic. We're not going to do a verse by verse of those three chapters, but we want to look at some principles. And the thing we want to focus on is the idea behind what Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11, or excuse me, 10 and 11 from 2 Corinthians 2, and it's going to remind us of a perspective that we need to have as we move forward in this day and age. Now, we're jumping into a discussion he's having with them about some internal issues of the church. We, it, it would take me a little while to explain all of those issues, so I'm just going to interrupt them midstream in their conversation and focus on the last part of this passage, not the first part. He was encouraging them to forgive. They had had to deal with a difficult situation. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In other words, he says, forgiveness is one of the things we have to do, being proactive, because why do we forgive? Why do we do all of these things in a proactive manner? This is the reason, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us. Why? For we are not unaware of his schemes. King James says, I love it, it says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of the way that he works. And loved ones, um, the more you grow in grace... The more you become like Jesus, the more aware you are of the enemy's plans, of the enemy's tricks, of the way he operates. I tell you, I used to be so amazed at some of the saints in the church where I grew up in, be facing a difficult situation, and I would hear those wonderful men and women of God say something like this, this just doesn't sound like Jesus. This doesn't sound like Jesus. Or, this sounds like the devil. You remember when this happened to King so-and-so? And boy, they understood the devil's schemes. And whenever we come to a new time, whenever we come to a difficult place, whenever trouble has come, whenever difficulty has come, there's a time that will dawn on you. Sooner or later, it will dawn on you. You will have a realization that the enemy has muddied the waters. Some point in time, you will have a realization that the enemy has muddied the waters. I was praying with a family back decades ago. I was a young pastor, and they had unexplainable uh, troubles in their home. We couldn't figure out what was going on. They didn't know what was going on. Um, and I, I was praying. We had prayed just nonstop for several weeks, it seemed. And God gave me a dream one night, and I was in the home of this family. And as I walked by a little obscure closet in their home, I was familiar with their home. It was used kind of as a storage pantry. As I walked by, uh, I, I became like a hound dog, and all the hair on my neck stood up. And I knew there was something profoundly evil in that closet. And... 
I, I knew it was there, and I won't give you the details because it, it, to those who were with us at that time, it would, it would really break a confidence. But I knew there was something evil in that closet, and I knew what it was. And I understood in a moment's time that it was something that had been hidden and put aside and overlooked, and it was not being brought to the table when we were trying to deal with the bondage that this family was facing. So I, I, went, I went to them and I said, this is what I believe the Lord showed me. I, I said, I believe that it was hidden in a closet in this room in your house. Uh, this is what I saw when I opened the door. There was a demonic spirit there and he was guarding a stack of things. I told him what the stack of things were. And I said, I believe what God is telling me is that you love the Lord, but you've not dealt with this stuff. You want to love him and you want to serve him, but you want to do it on your terms, keeping all of this stuff for use at a future time. Uh, you're holding on to baggage. And the husband began to weep and the wife began to manifest and we prayed with that and we dealt with that. And I will tell you this, God brought total victory and total deliverance to that family. Um, but the first thing that had to happen is they had to realize what was going on. They had to realize we have walked into the trap of Satan. It wasn't hypocrisy. It wasn't a, a hidden, heinous sin, but it was offense. It was baggage. It was stuff, fear. It was anger that they were holding to. And God was not able, well, boy, let me take that back. God's able to do whatever he wants to do. But because of the covenant relationship God has with us, God was hindered in doing what he wanted to do for them because they wouldn't let go. So they came to the realization. That's the first word you see there in your outline. Um, when we begin to discover the, the plans of Satan, we will discover, first of all, uh, by way of realization that this is a trap. This is what the devil does. The second thing that we need to focus on is that we need to watch our reaction because it's possible to have a, a realization of what's going on and have the wrong reaction. Go to the wrong people to fix it. Take the wrong path to fix it. And, and a lot of times we get relief from our burdens, not by giving them to Jesus, but by just spreading them out to other people to help us carry them. Then everybody's got baggage. Then everybody's got a burden. So I, I think we need to be aware of our reaction. And then when we realize what Satan is doing and we have the proper reaction of drawing close to God so that he draws close to us, then we begin recovery. So I want to tell you, we are, we are not past the difficulty of this age. I know you say, oh, pastor, oh, pastor, you don't understand. It's just a month before we turn the page to 2021. I know, and thank God he's a God of seasons. I think one of the reasons he gives us seasons is not just the biological, ecological reasons, but I think we are just wired to, to need change and to need to have hope, and God gives us seasons. And many, a many a year I have rejoiced in turning the page from December 31st to January 1st. But I want to tell you something, a change of mind is good sometime, a fresh start is good sometime, but there's nothing magical about the turning of that calendar page. I don't mean, boy, that, that went over real big, I, I can tell. Um, 
Corey, let me know how it went over in Brown Chapel. I'm I'm looking for some some help here. Um, You you know I'm teasing. Um, But what I'm trying to say is I'm not saying that we get past December and then we're in a new year, everything's going to be fine. Uh, But neither am I saying everything's going to continue and it's going to be bad and it's going to be rough. I'm saying that it's not the turning of a calendar page that changes our lives. It's the degree to which God impacts us with his presence and how well we receive it. Uh, I guess the best way of putting it is this way. One of the speakers in our prayer academy the other day said, um, we, need to, we need to keep shouting that the gates of hell will not prevail. We need to believe that the gates of hell will not prevail. But the speaker then said, but some of you don't understand that though the gates of hell will not prevail, the gates of hell are still real. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Then after we read that verse, we immediately begin to wrestle with flesh and blood. But we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers against spiritual wickedness. We know who wins, but loved ones, God has not promised us to go forward without a battle. He has not promised us to go forward without struggle. That's why he said to fight the good fight of faith. That's why speaking of the devil, he said, resist him in the knowledge of faith and move forward. We have a fight, but what we need to be sure that we do is to know how to conduct ourselves in the fight. Now, I think uh, there's a new awareness of spiritual warfare Um, And spiritual warfare is an overused word because we use spiritual warfare for the results of our carnal living. We use spiritual warfare. We we say it's an attack of the devil when it's just life's troubles that hit all of us. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust and not everything bad that happens to us is an attack of the enemy. You say, well, pastor, we know all sickness comes from the devil. Ultimately, yes, but some sickness comes because we're broken people in a broken world. Now that doesn't mean Jesus can't heal it. Doesn't mean Jesus can't make it right, but not everything that happens to us is spiritual warfare. Some of the things we go through is just the product of our sowing and reaping. Now the church is waking up as we've been praying, but I think it's the remnant that's waking up. And we, we need to realize, now hear me, now this is important. As we face the storms ahead, we need to realize that some storms are natural. And when Jesus dealt with some storms, he basically said this, calm down, be at peace. And there are some things that touch our lives that we just need the Lord to speak to those things and say, calm down. This is life. This is what's going to happen. This is a result of decisions by politicians. This is a result of decisions by people in authority. This is the result of, of, of wrong living. Calm down this natural storm. But there are other storms, at least one, uh, and depending on uh, how you interpret, maybe two, where Jesus didn't say, peace, be still. The word says that Jesus rebuked the storms. And it was the same word, rebuke, that he used when he dealt with demons. So I think when Jesus calms the storms of our life, sometimes he puts his arm around you and says, just be at peace. This is life. Sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof, but I'm going to help you. I'll never leave you. You're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then there are other times he doesn't step by you and put his arm around you. He steps in front of you between you and the storm and rebukes the storm. 
because it's an attack of the devil. It's demonic in origin. So um, I, I, I've got to hurry here. Please, please stop. Just leave me alone and let me finish here, okay? Um, I think we're in. A, I think what 2020 has done has revealed the propensity of the church to look for somebody to blame the trouble on. Prophets have let us down, we say, because their prophecies have not apparently come to pass. And then the prophets say, how dare you blame us for not prophesying correctly when you didn't do your part? And I want to tell you, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. We've got to, we've got to get a fresh grip on the, on the role of prophecy in the church. And we're going to look at it uh, from a pastor's perspective. And um, um, you, you also, well, never mind, never mind, we'll wait. But uh, uh, we're going we're to look at those things. But what we've got to understand is that right now, the, what 2020 has done has shown the propensity of the church to blame others for our trouble. Past sin, past failure, incorrect prophecy, lack of faith, the list goes on and on and on. Right now, the church of Jesus Christ is busy trying to cover their butts as everything tries to settle. But I tell you what we better do, we better understand that we've just, as, a, as the church in general, I don't think our church, I really don't think our church has, but as the church in general, we've just failed the dress rehearsal for the long emergency. We failed it because we're looking, this is your fault. This is her fault. This is their fault. This is your fault. And what we need to understand is that God is looking for a people that are committed in love to each other, committed in unity, committed in a common purpose. And one of the things he does is he turns us over to things beyond our understanding so we will learn to turn to him and to put our arms around each other and the church in general. I think Christian life has. I pat you on the back. But the church in general has not done that. Um, uh, I think there's plenty of stuff to deal with. There's plenty of issues to discuss. But we need to remember when Jesus told the parable about the soil and the seeds. You know, the parable of the sower. You know the story, he went out, some seed fell by the wayside and was devoured. Some fell on shallow ground, had no root, in the heat of the day it withered. Some fell on good ground, but weeds came in and choked the life of it. And some seed fell on, on um, uh, good ground and prospered and brought a great return. And most evangelical preachers will preach, when they preach about that, about the power of the seed. The seed will bear fruit. Guys, we know that. That's a no-brainer. The seed of God will not fail. The word of God will not fail. The word of God will never return void. We know that. Our confidence, full confidence is in the word of God. But that story tells us a lot about the dirt that the seed falls into. And we are so happy with the power of the seed that we don't notice that Jesus was talking as much about the soil as he was the seed. That he said there will be some receivers of the word whose life is like seed that falls by the wayside. It's amazingly shallow. And no sooner does the, the seed fall on that heart than the devil comes and takes it away. 
You can see that in every church of America. Sermons are being shared. Promises are being shared. Invitations to eternal life are being shared. And you've got people sitting there wondering, hey, you know, what time is kickoff? You know. Um, we've got uh, Christians that are like the soil that was shallow. It had the ability to receive the seed and the seed germinated, but there was no depth to it. And when persecution arises, the first time it becomes difficult to be a believer, then we quit, we run away. That's the shallow ground. There's some seed that falls on good ground, but life for that seed is so cluttered. Everything else is allowed to grow there. Everything else uh, shares the nourishment that ought to be going to the seed. But some of us, and, and I pray all of us, are good ground that receives the, soil, uh, the seed and allows for what God intends to blossom in our life. And it goes back to those three words. When we realize what's going on, what will our reaction be to it? And how do we recover? Now, I want to give you a shocker. No weapon formed against us will prosper. You see, that's not a shocker. And this is the shocker. But there will be weapons formed against us. The gates of hell will not prevail. That's not a shocker. But the gates of hell are, are, are planning. That's the shocker. So for everyone that thought Christianity, once I receive Jesus, all my problems are washed away. I won't have any more struggles. You've got to understand that when you receive Jesus, your sins are washed away and your weakness is washed away. You're strengthened to overcome whatever life throws at you. But Jesus put it best in this world, you will have trouble. Let's, let's get started here. Y'all, it's taken y'all entirely too long. Let's get to just, and this is, there's all kinds of, of satanic strategies. We're just going to see from the early church how he put three right in a row. Bam, bam, bam. This is not the only strategy. We could preach about dozens of strategies. But I just want to take a snapshot. I'm not even going to show you a video. Just three snapshots of how the enemy fought against the early church. And my prayer is that when we walk away, we will be better equipped to fight. We'll be better equipped to know how to do what God wants us to do. You say, but pastor, this, you mean it's just like one after another after another? Yeah, I tell you, life is tough. We have to carry burdens. I want to give you a, a, a word uh, from my oldest grandson. He was somewhere the other day and he was carrying a box and a Christmas song started that he loved. And you saw him kind of perk up and he, and he said, here, mama, hold my box. I got to dance. <laughs> Woo! Guys, I wish I could give you a gospel that says you don't have any boxes to carry. I wish I could give you a box that's, I mean, a, a promise where you could say, well, somebody else has to carry my load for a while. Somebody else needs to be responsible for my load. Loved ones, I don't know if I can tell you that, but I can tell you this. Jesus is able to hold the box for a while while you dance. He's able to hold the box for a while while you dance. <laughs> there was a man in our church growing up. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure he's in heaven now. Just, I haven't seen him in years just because of his age. Uh, Brother Cheatham was such a wonderful man. And he was a very quiet, unassuming man, very, very cordial, but to me, not an extrovert. He was a city bus driver. And every now and then, 
when my mom and I were out doing something, we'd see him driving the bus and he'd always wave and we'd wave back. He, 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 he lived a good life, an honorable life, but um, there was something he did. It was his way of worshiping the Lord that was absolutely phenomenal to me. It, it was something I didn't understand at the time. And uh, it was something that when you brought a friend from school, you never knew how to explain what Brother Cheatham was doing, but the Spirit of God would come upon him, this quiet, unassuming man who looked too old to make any sudden movements, really, um, would get in the aisle and start huckabucking, start dancing up and down the aisle. And I, I think back on it, I thought, I would be in intensive care <laughs> if I moved my body the way he moved his. And I, I, it, it was clear that it was the spirit of the Lord that was upon him and he would dance for a few moments and then he'd slow down and sit and service would continue. And I asked my mom about that and I, I said, what is that? And she just said, he just got full of the joy of the Lord. And that was the only explanation she ever gave me. That didn't help me one bit. But I look back now on Brother Cheatham and I realize what it was, that was his way. You, you know, you say, well, is, is that the Holy Spirit? Well, you can say it's the Holy Spirit or you can say it's our reaction to the Holy Spirit. You know, um, I remember I got my finger stuck in an electric blanket plug-in and I plugged in the electric blanket which was plugged into the wall and my finger was stuck and I had some Cheatham-esque moves, let me tell you. <laughs> And my, my mom explained it to me this way. She said, Though that dancing you were doing, that wasn't electricity. That was your response to electricity. And she said, this is just Brother Cheatham's response to the joy of the Lord. And loved ones, can I tell you this? You don't have to dance. You don't have to even get a flag and be part of our worship at the beginning. So you don't have to do any of that. But sooner or later, you're going to have to find that place whether it's weeping, whether it's laughing, whether it's whistling, whatever it is, someplace you and I have to learn to let the Holy Spirit give us the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord. Now, the reaction may look different. You may be a Cheetah-esque, you know, dancer. You may be someone that just sits and weeps. You may be someone that breaks out in laughter. But one of the things God is trying to get us to do is to let go of the rage and let go of the hurt and let go of the fear. And you may say, pastor, but all of that's justified. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm sure the rage and the hurt and the pain and the, the wrong that's been done to you is justified. I mean, your, your, your feelings about it are justified. That's not the issue. I would never tell you not to, not to um, uh, struggle with those things that you've been through or those things that you're going through. But what I would tell you is let the Lord show you how to lay the box aside and dance. I mean, It's, I don't know what it looks like to you. You say, but I've got a right to my emotions. Mm, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Let me put it to you this way. When Paul was talking about us putting our loved ones in the grave, he said, brothers, 
don't grieve. And if we stop that sentence there, that would be horrible. I've heard preachers tell people just weeping over a, uh, a dead loved one, oh, don't, don't cry, you know where they are. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not good to tell somebody they shouldn't weep and grieve. That's why it doesn't bother me when people just wail when they've lost a loved one. It doesn't bother me at all because they're processing their grief. He did not say, don't grieve. This is what he said. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. Grieve all you want to, but at the bottom of your grief, know that hope is there. Cry all you want to, but at the end of your tears, hope is there. Lament the unfairness and the brokenness of this world all that you want to, but you have hope. He said, if all of our hope is found in this world, if all of our hope is bound up in this political system, if all of our hope is bound up in this present culture, if all of our hope is bound up in this present society, we are of all men most miserable. But this world's not our home. We're just passing through. Now, that doesn't mean that what happens here doesn't matter. But loved ones, I'm telling you, some way, somehow, I don't know what it will look like with you. I'm not trying to tell you to react my way. But somehow you got to put the box down and say, let me dance. Let me dance. Let me dance. You say, what do I do after I'm through dancing? Well, you usually have to pick the stinking box back up. But we learn that there are some storms that we just take a deep breath and walk through. There are other storms that need to be rebuked by the Lord. Let's look at this pattern in Acts. I'm I'm just going to have to be very brief. The first storm, the first attack in Acts 4 is persecution. Can I tell you that that is a frontal assault that is often designed to take the wind out of us and to make God seem far away? Um, and, we, and we've got to learn to stand against persecution. Jeremiah asked this question. He said, if you have run with footmen and they have wearied you, what will you do when horsemen come? Now, he, he wasn't criticizing them. And, and, and loved ones, I'm not trying to be critical of other voices, but I heard somebody that I have the utmost respect for say, the church in America is just a bunch of wusses. He said, all it took was 70 or 90 people dying, and we caved in and gave up our rights. Don't say amen right now. Let me finish. <laughs> and I listened to him, and, and people were cheering him and applauding him. And I said, you know nothing about caring for the flock. Because concern is not fear. Caution is not unbelief. We, the church has just said, if you don't see it the way I see it, if you don't think my solution is the right solution, then you just are clueless. No, but we do need to understand it. I don't agree with that mindset. I don't agree with that mindset. But I will tell you this. We do need to understand when persecution and difficulty comes, that's usually the first thing the devil does because it's usually what our flesh will respond to the quickest. <laughs> there, there's a story in um, the book Jesus Freaks 
about uh, in a third world country that a church was invaded and they had done all sorts of horrible things. And uh, the pastor's wife had a little baby just a few months old. And the people that invaded the church and were threatening them and doing all this stuff, they took the baby out of the arms of that pastor's wife and from a second story window threw that baby down to the ground. And the baby died. And they said, let's see if you can still have church now. And the mother went out with some of the other women and they took up that baby. They wrapped its bloodied body in her blanket. And she came in and sat on the front row and began to rock her baby. And somebody said, how can you do that? She said, this is the last service I'll have with my baby till we get to the other side. I just want to hold it through one more song. Now you see, loved ones, we get mad about that. We say, oh, we ought to kill those folks. We, we say this ought to happen, that ought to happen. We don't know what to do with suffering and the enemy knows we don't know what to do with suffering. So that's usually his first approach if our skin is threatened. That's the approach he took with Job. The King James says, skin for skin. In other words, if, if, his, if his flesh is threatened, he will turn on you immediately. But Jesus warned us. He says, you're going to have persecution. We don't know what the, the, the future holds. And that's why we've made a commitment to pray regularly for the persecuted church around the world. We suffer with those who suffer. We weep with those that weep. And loved ones, I want to tell you, I can't guarantee you that everything's going to be right because we are Americans. I can't tell you that everything's going to be right because we are Christians. But I want to tell you when persecution and adversity comes, and we've not been accustomed to that. We've not been accustomed to that. Uh, we, we, we get insulted by somebody, we get called names, and we, we cry over being persecuted. But loving as I want to tell you, the, the enemy full steam went against the church in Acts chapter 4. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. And the enemy generally in most cultures will take a direct frontal assault and it's called persecution. But what happened? The church buckled up and said, Lord, give us strength and boldness to proclaim your name and let us be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And they suffered and grew. They suffered and grew. So the enemy decides he'll try something else. This is the second thing on your outline. It's Acts 5. And if persecution doesn't work, the enemy says, well, let's try inner pollution. Let's try polluting the, the pureness of their faith. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now, we know from the background that people like Barnabas had sold property, and, and the church was in a financial uh, place they'd never been before. Thousands of believers that were there on the day of Pentecost were staying they weren't going home. They were, they were going to stay till they got rooted in their faith, but they had to be fed. They had to be taken care of. And people were selling land. And Barnabas, uh, a Levite from Cyprus, um, 
sold a piece of land and gave the money to the apostles to take care of those that were temporarily in Jerusalem. And Barnabas was such, Barnabas wasn't even his real name. Joseph was his name, but Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, that he had a nickname, old encourager. I mean, here comes old encourager. I mean, it was so much a part of his life. They wanted to be like Barnabas. They wanted to get a nickname like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? He said, God didn't require you to sell the land. And whatever you sold it for, you could have given part of it or none of it. God didn't require this of you. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Um, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. You don't want to do this during a Sunday school growth campaign. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay. Now you would have thought that would have shut down the church. Two of your prominent members dropping dead during service. Who wants to come to church? But what happened? The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. See, the enemy says we may have better luck with polluted hearts than with persecuted hearts. See, persecution just made the church grow. Persecution just made the church stronger. Let's try another approach. And it was a backwards approach of polluting the hearts. And loved ones, perhaps the most dangerous place to live is to be so comfortable with the presence of God that it has no bearing on you whatsoever. I believe that God is going to give us an Azusa Street here. I believe we're going to have the presence of the Lord come. And we were talking about this with a parent uh, last week. We said in Azusa Street, uh, the, while moms and dads were worshiping the Lord and the glory of the Lord came in the form of a cloud, the little toddlers, the little elementary school students, they weren't showing disrespect, but they would run into the cloud and, and disappear from sight. And you could hear the children in there laughing and shouting, and they would come out of the clouds saying, we've seen Jesus. We've seen angels. We've seen this Bible character and that Bible character. 
And I believe, I believe the day is coming when our children, so innocent of heart and so pure in their devotion to the Lord, will run into the presence of the Lord and rejoice. But loved ones, we look at those children and we say how sweet that in their innocence they can come into the presence of the Lord and still behave like children. But I want to tell you something, it's dangerous when adults behave like children. And when adults come into the presence of the Lord and they can just shake it off. They can just shake it off. I know what it's like to have somebody, and I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about anybody here. Don't look around or don't say, well, it must be next service's crowd. I mean, next Sunday's crowd. No, but I know what it's like when I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure if I'm being told the truth. I know what it's like to have somebody look me in the eye and say, I swear to you, preacher. I swear to you, this is the truth. Only to find out they were lying, looking me in the eye, lying. You've all experienced that. Yes, mama, I did not do that. I did, as God is my witness, I did not flirt with my secretary or whatever. You know, it goes on and on. So we have to ask this question. I mean, it's bad enough to lie to each other. It's a grievous enough sin to lie to your husband or your wife. But that's not what I'm talking about. Peter said, you've not just lied to men. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Because it was the Holy Spirit saying, I never knew they were lying. I can't believe they told me this. And what does God say? We say, my God, what does God say? I mean, it's like, I can't believe it. No, to lie to the Holy Spirit you got to understand this. He always knows the truth, and every lie is ultimately against him. Every lie, it originates in Satan's heart. He's the father of all lies. Every time we tell a lie, we're being like the devil. Okay? We, we understand that. Um, but there's a, there's, there's a difference between something being technically common level true and something being profoundly true. When David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband, David wrote that beautiful Psalm 51, and this is what he said, against you and you only have I sinned. I remember as a teenager reading that when I understood that was written as, as repentance for David's sin, and I thought, that's so arrogant. He sinned against this young woman. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against her family. He sinned against Israel. And David said, well, Lord, you know, it was just, it was just a, between me and you. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, Lord, I grieved your heart on so many levels. But at the end of the day, the most grievous part of my sin is that I did it in full view of you, knowing what you had promised to me. See, God spoke to him through the prophet and said, if you had needed anything, if you, if you were lacking something in your home, if you had needed anything, you, would have, you could have just said, Lord, I have need and I would have met it. But knowing that you went outside the bounds of marriage, knowing that you broke the law of God and you broke his heart. <clears throat> and David was saying, Lord, I understand now I've been trying to cover up my sin, how it affected her family, how it affected her, how it affected Uriah, how it affected my own family. But Lord, that's not the issue now. The issue is how do I make things right with you? And when you fail to do that, that's lying to the Holy Spirit. To lie against the Holy Spirit is to know that the Spirit is directly dealing with you 
yet you reject his voice, you reject his pleading, you reject the opportunity. All of us can do things that we don't even realize are wrong. All of us can do things that we realize is wrong, but we just, wrong place, wrong time, wrong decision. I'm not excusing it, I'm just saying it wasn't a premeditation of the heart, we just did wrong. But when the Holy Spirit steps in the way, like he did with Balaam, you remember Balaam said, I can't curse Israel. I can only speak what God speaks. And Balaam kept whittling away, compromising with his heart, saying, well, Lord, let, let me at least go talk to him. And God said, go, go talk to him. I've told you no, but if you want to go, go talk to him, but only speak what I tell you to. And as he's going to speak to King Balak, an angel of the Lord stops him. A, a, a sword held before that donkey and, and the donkey, she sees something that Balaam, the prophet, can't see. And whenever he starts beating her, saying, get moving, the donkey began to speak. And loved ones, when you have so hardened your heart against the voice of God, you don't blink an eye when a jackass talks. You don't blink an eye. He carries on a conversation as though this happened every day of the week. Oh, man, and it shows the, the blackness of his heart because God is speaking to this man as a prophet. God sends angels that the man's animals see before he can see. Loved ones, I want to tell you, it is a dangerous thing when you know something is wrong and the Spirit of God is dealing with you to press against it, to keep pressing, to keep pressing. It's a dangerous thing to hold to hidden sins in your life. I tell you, God wants us to be perfect, but he knows that's not going to happen until we get to him. But I want to tell you something. God will forgive. God will be gracious. This sounds hokey as long as we're trying as long as we're, we're honest before him, as long as we're walking in integrity, his mercy is abundant, his goodness is everlasting. God remembers our frame, he says, that we're but dust. But the moment you recognize the heavenly power of God working in your life and you immediately begin to try to sidestep it, you try to minimize it. You try to marginalize it. You try to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. This is true, but. This is true, but. This is true, but. The moment you begin to do that, you never know when you may cross that line of lying only, not only to others and lying not only to yourself, but you, you have crossed the line that you begin to lie to the Holy Spirit. And loved ones, the book of Hebrews says this, and it's worth a sermon on its own, but the book of Hebrews tells us when we that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit try to sidestep that enlightenment by the Holy Spirit, there comes a day when we may find ourselves cut off from further dealing by the Lord. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I, I mean, that's another sermon for another time. But I'm telling you that we, Bobby Connor was right in this respect when he said, we've become far too casual with a God we barely know. I remember a gentleman that was considered a pillar of our church. Wonderful man, sweet man, a Sunday school teacher of mine at one point. 
so, so sensitive to God. Well, I won't tell you those stories because some might hear and know who I'm talking about. But um, just such a godly man. But he, he somehow got hurt with the church, got mad with the church. And he would only come back on occasion. Just come back on occasion. And one Sunday night in our church, the Holy Spirit was moving God was moving, especially during the worship time. And then there was a message in tongues and an interpretation. And it was a, it was very clear, a call to come home. And you could feel it. The spirit of God was so real, the presence so, so palpable. It's like you could almost cut it with a knife to use an overworked analogy. And, and the pastor just stood and, and he said, I just feel that if I don't get to preach tonight, it's okay. God is calling people to a place of repentance, God is calling people back home and all over the church. People began to weep. Youth began to weep. Children began to weep. They put down their coloring books and they began to come to the altar. And I was moved by the Holy Spirit. And I saw this man that had drifted from relationship with the Lord. And I went over to him and, and I said, Brother so-and-so, I said, I, I would never... Uh, say anything disrespectful or dishonorable to you. I was just a, a, a teenager, a young teenager. And uh, I said, but I feel that the Lord is saying you need to come home and that his arms are wide open and that the door is, is open for you. And he put his arm on my shoulder and he was, he was crying. And he said, Stevie, he said, Stevie, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I've been in church a long time and I just don't feel that this is the time for me to come back to the Lord. And he was so kind to me. He was so gracious to me. I was so young. He just disarmed me. I had no argument. And I said, I, I think you need to come home. He said, I will one day. I will when it's time. And um, I went back to my seat. I, I didn't understand what had just happened. Uh, a few minutes later, my pastor goes to him, talks to him for a minute, and he comes down to the altar and surrenders his, his life to the Lord. And I found out years later that this is what my pastor said. He called him by name. He said, you're lying to me. You're lying to this boy. And most important, you're lying to the Holy Ghost. You know he has put this whole night together for you. Every song has been to tenderize your hard heart. Every testimony has been to touch your heart and life. A message in tongues was a direct appeal from heaven for you to come home. Now you can sit here and hide behind your religio religiosity all you want to, or you can quit lying to the Holy Ghost. He said, because I already know you've already lied to me. You've already lied to Stevie. I, see, I didn't know we were saying any of this. Um, one of, the, one of the deacons had gone to him with my pastor. He said, now the question you've got to decide, you've already lied to us, but we don't matter, is are you going to lie to the Holy Spirit? You know he's calling you. Are you going to push him away? Or are you going to come? And I want to tell you that night a life was redeemed. He got back on track and, and God did a wonderful work. But you know, sometimes pollution doesn't work because what happened, God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. You say, you mean God will kill me if my heart's not pure? Oh no. Hey, listen, there's two horrible things that would happen if God dealt with us every time our heart wasn't pure is number one, none of you would be here to hear me preach. But can I tell you the second horrible thing? I wouldn't be here to preach. No, 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 no. God has the right to deal as harshly as he sees fit or as mercifully as he sees fit. 
He just allowed this to happen for us to understand a principle. If the devil can't pull you away and crush you with persecution, the devil will do it with pollution or he'll try to. He'll try to put something in your heart. He'll leave you a comfort zone in church. All the while you're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Now what was the third thing when pollution didn't work? Because you know what happened after this? Uh, you would have thought that would have ruined the church. You would have thought that scandal on the front page of the Jerusalem Times would have shut them down. You'd have thought it would have started a government investigation. What are y'all doing in here that people just come to worship and they drop dead? You're not practicing social distancing? <laughs> you know, what's going on? But no, what happens is it terrified people. And when it said no one else dared join themselves to them, what that meant was nobody played around the edges anymore. And it says, nevertheless, People kept coming to the Lord in record numbers. So that didn't work. What's the last thing? Well, I call it preoccupation. That's in Acts chapter 6. See, if he can't crush us with persecution, he will try to make us comfortable with pollution, think we're playing both ends against the middle, getting the best of both worlds, but you're getting the cheap side of both worlds. And if that doesn't work, he may say, well, there's nothing I can do about their devotion to the Lord. So if I can just make them so busy doing what I didn't call them to do, taking on burdens that I didn't give them to bear, signing up for ministry that I never intended them to do, if I can keep them busy, that will distract them. It's not as good as getting them to sin but if I can just get them to not live well. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being looked, overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, widows were always taken care of in the Jewish community, always. You had to meet certain statistics. You had to be, you know, 60 years of age or older. You had to have no family that was able to take care of you. And you were listed with the widows and the church would take care of you. The, the, the Hebraic Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem, this was part of their culture. But the Gentile, uh, not Gentile, the, the, the uh, Grecian Jews, the Jews that were Jewish but had been raised outside of Jerusalem, or the Gentile Christians, there were a smattering of them at this point, not a lot. They didn't have such a structure. So their widows, there was no provision for their widows to be taken care of. So now they're fussing with each other. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And to everybody that's called into ministry, please understand this is not a pass for you being a servant. This is not, you don't have to serve. You will spend the rest of your life serving. That's not what they were saying. They said, it ain't, it ain't my job to serve these widows, grits and bacon. Well, maybe not bacon in that <laughs> church. They weren't demeaning the waiting of tables. They said, this needs to be done, but it's not right for us because we already have an assignment. Okay. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. 
we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Satan said, I will get everybody off track. And in the presence of the Lord, the apostles said, look, he's already given us a command to break the bread of life and to wait before him in prayer. Our hands are full. So what we need to do, the widows must be taken care of. Let's take a lesson from the playbook of Moses. Let, and by the way, I finished Moses this Wednesday. He's going to heaven this Wednesday. You don't want to miss that. <laughs> Moses, at the advice of his father-in-law, said, let's, Moses, let's try this. You're wearing yourself out. You're wearing the people out. Get men that you can put over different groups and then give them men they can put under smaller groups and give them leaders they can put under smaller groups. And this way, everybody's needs will be met and you'll live to be an old man, an older man. Okay? They said, let's do what Moses did. And so they appointed seven men who could put groups under them and the problem was solved. What happened? The church stopped complaining. The widows had their needs met. The church shines so brightly in this moment that many priests came to the Lord and the church kept on growing. That didn't work for the enemy either. Um, let, let me put it to you this way. I've said this before and I'll keep saying it till we all understand it. In the New Testament, the children of God learn to be led by the Spirit, not by a burden. There's always things that will burden your heart. There's always things that you want to see done. Maybe you can give an offering to it. Maybe you can help someone who is doing it. But not everything you're burdened about is your responsibility. And if you're not careful, you may say, well, I'm not falling into the trap of doing it. I can't do it. But somebody ought to do something. Be careful you don't fall into the trap of nagging other people to do your burden. Just focus on your call. Rest of it will take, it'll happen. It'll happen. We've got to be led by the Spirit, not by a burden. But let me tell you what happened in Acts chapter 6. Greater needs, when a church starts having greater needs, when a church starts not meeting the needs of people, that's not the time to get mad, pronounce Ichabod over the church, and leave. That's the time to understand that greater needs are a signal that greater ministry is about to begin. So stay and find out what God may want you to do about the problem or pray a solution into that lack that the church has. Let me tell you this, and, and we're going to begin to wrap it up here. Churches continue to grow until three, one of three things happen. Um, number one, churches that are following the Lord continue to grow until they reach optimum size for their calling. Not every church is going to have 10,000 people. Not every church is going to have 1,000 people. <laughs> Not every church is going to have 200 people. Depending on what the calling of the church is, they'll grow to that. The average church in America is structured to take care of about 100 adults and their children. That's about all, that's, that's about all the average church can do because of the way we're structured. Okay, now whenever a church feels the call of the Lord to become a church of 200, 500, or 2,000, they have to make changes so that the church can minister to that many people. You have to grow staff, you have to grow volunteers. Um, um, I, you know, our church does not operate like the church of 100. We can't because we'd lose everybody 
if we operated that way. But we, we've tried to get a feel for our calling and we say, Lord, this is, this is the number of people we feel like you've given us and we want to be the best church of a couple of thousand that we can be. And now if he wants us to grow, we need more land, we need more space, several things we need. But when a church reaches its optimum calling, the, the Lord may say that's big enough. I, I have a pastor friend, he's in heaven now, but he always said, I can never pastor more than a couple of hundred people. He said, I don't want to pastor more than a couple hundred people. Now I've heard some people say that and they just shut down evangelism, you know. My, here's my group, the rest of y'all go to hell, you know, it w- was, was the attitude. But this guy said, I know, he said, my talents are only about 200 people. So every time they started approaching 200, he broke off into a new church. And in the city where he pastored about 200 people, um, when he eventually left that church, I believe it was nine other congregations in town, each of them with 100 to 200 people. Uh, so you've got to find out the calling. When, when you reach your optimum size, God may say, okay, now minister to these folks. Okay. The second reason a church stops growing is their ministry may become immeasurable. In other words, they may be growing, but there's no way of measuring how they're growing. Um, I, I think that's where our church is. I think, I, I think we, we are hovering around a certain number but our church is growing, and I'll tell you why. We've invested in university students that go off and start ministries wherever they get a job and blossom. And the effect of Christian life is being felt all over the country through university ministries. Uh, we, we pastor in a military town where chaplains come in and, and military come in and they go all over the world. And you would be surprised at how many places this week will play this Sunday morning service all around the world because of our military family that's taken it. Uh, South Carolina School of Leadership, we ask folks to give us nine months of their life. Some stay for a second year, some stay for a third year, some stay here. But I want to tell you, in mission fields all over the world and in churches all over America, the ministry of Christian life is having effect in all of those places. But we have no way of counting. We have no way of counting. Um, and if, if we were the kind of church that was driven by numbers, we'd be, we'd be psychotic because we have no way of knowing. Uh, but here's the third reason a church will stop growing. Okay, they, they reach their calling, um, their ministry becomes immeasurable. Or number three, they stop meeting needs. That's the reason most churches stop growing. They stop meeting needs. The reason the church in Jerusalem stopped is they were no longer meeting the needs of a significant portion of their population. Now, when a church finds itself not meeting needs, there's two questions that need to be asked. Will I grow up? That's the first question. Sometimes people have unreasonable expectations. Sometimes people need to understand that at a church our size, you can't have what you can have at a church of 100. There are some things that work with 100 people that will never work with 2,000 people. And there are some things you can do with 2,000 people that you can never do with 100 people. You've got to find out, let, Lord, let me grow up. If my needs aren't being met, do I need to change? Or here's the second question, do I need to grow up? Maybe I need to step up. Maybe I need to step up. 
the, the great ministry of Stephen and Philip that we read about in Acts chapter 7. Philip went on and generationally his daughters were prophesying. Stephen was the first uh, 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 martyr for the church that we know of. And there's a strong case that Paul was converted in large measure because of the martyrdom of Stephen. You see, whenever the church stops meeting needs, we've all got to put our heads together and we've all got to humble ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, am I just being a, a whiny hiney? Do I need to grow up? Or do I need to step up? Do I need to fix this? Do I need to offer myself? Well, that was so unpopular. We're going to go to the Christian life lessons. Let me give you three things I want you to take home and remember. Here's number one. The proper response to persecution is prayer and support. The response to persecution is not to run. Persecu the response to persecution is not to withdraw, not to give up, not to become a closet Christian. The proper response to persecution is prayer and support. Why, you know, we support each other. We pray for each other. And what's the result? The church grows. The church will grow. Here's the second Christian life lesson. The proper response to pollution is unhindered openness to the Holy Spirit. Unhindered openness to the Holy Spirit. When there's something in us that ought not be there, realize that God's not kicking us out. You don't have to say, oh, he's going to kill me if I'm, if I'm not 100% pure. No, Ananias and Sapphira were an object lesson for the church. Thank God he doesn't do that with all of us. But what we have learned is that if the church will come clean, if a believer will come clean and be open to the Holy Spirit, you'll find that you're not going to be judged. You'll find that you're not going to be condemned. In fact, the result is that the church will gain respect and a new voice in the community. Back in the 1980s when we had the fall of our televangelists, I was just a young pastor, but I think we really handled it poorly. We went on the air trying to explain demonic strategies to people that didn't know Jesus. We went on the air saying, you don't understand the pressure these men and women are under. And we went on the air trying to talk King James English to a congregation, I mean to an audience that didn't know anything about the Lord. I tell you what would have turned America on its heels if the leaders of the church had said, we failed you. These men and women went forward with our endorsement and our, bless, our blessing, our empowerment. We did not hold them accountable. We failed you. And the church of the Lord Jesus wants you to know that for every evangelist that visits a prostitute, there are hundreds of thousands of pastors, men and women that serve God honorably. We are so sorry we betrayed your trust. We are so sorry we let you down. We repent and we ask you to come back and let us show you what real Christianity is. But we didn't do that. We, just like this last year, we're so, we're so interested in covering ourselves. You know, why didn't my prophecy come true? Well, you ought to know it was your fault. Why have I dropped out of church? Well, you ought to know you made the prophecy. No, 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 no. When there's something that needs correction in the body of Christ, let the Spirit of God correct it 
What does he, so what does he say? Now, y'all, I'm through, but now this, y'all are just, you're, you're just pushing me. <laughs> what did Paul say to the Galatians? When a brother is overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, do what? Restore that person in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself because you could have been the one who fell. We've got to rediscover humility. We've got to rediscover that for everybody who made a mistake, our job is not to write them off. Our job is to restore them because if it weren't for the grace of God, you could have been the one that was wrong. I could have been the one that was wrong. Here's the third thing. The proper response to preoccupation is refocusing. Every now and then the church just needs to say we've gotten distracted doing ministries that don't make a difference. We've gotten distracted putting money in things that don't make a difference. And if we'll do that and refocus, the saints will be freed to their calling. The saints will develop new ministries. The saints will have their needs met and many people come to Jesus. Okay, if you, if you will, I, I just hit the time where I'm supposed to act like the power grid went down and nothing else can be broadcast. But if, if you will give me five minutes, I promise you I'll be through in five minutes. I want to say this, where we are, where we are right now, God is bringing us together again for a focused time after nearly a year of testing and trial and difficulty. We have got to learn two things. We've got to learn how to come together. Now, I think, you know, you say, well, why would God, if he loves us so much, why would he have it where we couldn't come to church for so long? Well, I, I think there's several reasons for that, but I think one of the reasons is people are so casual with church attendance, they rarely come anyway. And I think some of what was going on is God wanting to say, do you really want to live a life where you don't go to church? And I think we've all said no. It's not what we want. So we've got to learn to come together. And the day may come where there, uh, where there are rules and where there are pandemics and there are things where we can't come together like we want to, but we've got to find together to come together as we can. We've got to learn to come together. But let me say this. This is perhaps the most important lesson. God wants his people to not only learn to come together, he wants us to learn to come aside. You see... Just as, and some of you are here today and you're pregnant, there's a life growing inside of you. And just as God protects that life during the first nine months of its existence from danger, from disease, from unnecessary noise and, 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 and all of that, that, that baby, until that baby is born, is protected from everything unnecessary in a place called the tomb, uh, the womb, the womb. L listen to me now, the womb. But if we don't choose the womb, we have to choose the tomb. You see, you, you're, you and I have been thrust into a cave during the last eight or nine months. And some of us have found life there and some of us have found death there. Some of us have found a new walk with the Lord. Some of us have just found one reason after another to complain and to walk in bitterness. God is telling you to come aside and he's calling you just as that baby is brought to the secret place of its mother's womb. 
We are being called back to the secret place of the Lord's presence. Father, you say, Papa, you say, Pastor, you, you've, preached, you've preached this for years. We've got to have a secret time with the Lord. We've got to walk in the secret place with the Lord. Well, if you'll remember this, years ago, I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling you the most important thing you can do is have a secret life with God. Sunday morning's not enough. You've got to find that secret place. That's what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, uh, don't go pray out where everybody sees you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a time for that. But he said, you find your closet or you find your room where you can pray in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Loved ones, listen. It's time that we stop treating Christianity like membership in Kiwanis. It's time we stop treating Christianity like just a, a spoke on the wheel of our life. Christianity is the hub and Jesus is the hub and everything else that we do must grow out of Jesus. The best thing I can tell you is not some financial advice. The best thing I can tell you is not some high efficiency mask that you can buy on Amazon. The best thing I can tell you is not some mix of vitamins to take. All of that may have its place. But some of you have begun to notice the burden that you walk under this, this last year. That's, that's what 2020 has done to you. It's shown you the burden you walk under. And the best thing you can do, the best thing you can do is pick up your box. Here, Jesus, I got to dance. Because dancing comes from the presence of the Lord. You say, but pastor, you don't know what's around me. Okay, five minutes. We'll have to finish later. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for those that are here and in Brown Chapel and for you that are home. We need to really refocus not on what's out there, but we need to refocus on coming into his presence collectively and individually. There is a flow of life. There's a river of life waiting for those that will come to him. And I'm going to ask you to do this. Our, our ministry teams will be in our prayer area out in the hallway as usual. Whether you're here in Brown Chapel, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want him to be the savior of your life, come forward, tell those prayer partners. They know how to pray with you. They'll get you started in your walk with the Lord. If you're listening online, people are waiting to receive a phone call from you. They'll help you get started in your walk with Jesus. But we want to begin to recover something today. It's not going to all happen today, but we want to begin to recover something today. And it's called proximity to Jesus. We want to begin to come dwelling in his presence like we never have before. So if you're here and you can do this at home, if you are sick and you need healing, I want you to know we serve a God who is healer of all manner of diseases. We don't want to carry a box he never intended us to carry. We don't want to carry sickness 
if it's not necessary. We know that he's healer, and we are asking God to begin to turn his, his face toward us and begin to show us more healings. If you're here and you need deliverance, you need deliverance from the power of hell, we believe that our God is able to deliver you. We believe that demons tremble at the name of Jesus. If you're here and you just need encouragement, you just say, Pastor, I've got, I've got this problem at work, or I've just lost my job, or I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. You may be at home. You may, may have been unable to get with us to church. And you say, I'm having cabin fever, and I'm going wacko. And, and um, uh, I've started having long, long conversations with my, you know, with my cat or something. And I, I need the Lord to give me some stability. He's able. He's able. Now, those of you that want to give your heart to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to come. And the, the altar ministry workers are going that way now. When, whenever I, I give you the signal, please come. And, and I'm about to do that in about 15 seconds. But if you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I need prayer, I need, I need healing, I need deliverance. Loved ones, we're not at this point because we try to honor everyone's concerns. We're not at this point where everybody can come lay hands on you. But they can see you and they can extend their hand toward you and they can pray. If you are here, and I hope you'll do it over in Brown Chapel, I hope you can do it at home. If you need healing or deliverance or you need the Lord to rescue you from some kind of oppression, I want to just ask you to stand right where you are and we're going to pray for you. Would you do that? <coughs> just stand right where you are, yeah. We're not going to put you on camera. But Father, whether it's here in the main sanctuary or over in the chapel, whether it's at home and Kentucky or Alabama, wherever we're watching from, right here in Columbia maybe, we ask in the strong name of Jesus that you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. You have been so patient and you have been so deliberate. You have been so kind and loving, wooing us and drawing us to you. We ask right now, that you, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, would bring healing to those that are sick. Father, turn aside fevers. Turn aside the virus. Turn aside seasonal allergies. Turn aside cancer and kidney problems. And the list goes on and on. Wherever we are, whatever we're struggling with, problems with our, jo uh, our joints and our, our, our uh, 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 oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, whatever we're struggling with, Whatever we're struggling with, whatever the cause of our infirmity, we, we are not healers, but you are the healer. Gifts of healing are promised as gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're asking that gifts of healing would operate in Jesus' name. 
Lord, nobody needs credit. Nobody needs to receive the glory except you. But Lord, I'm asking that all over the audience today, you would let your healing touch be upon them. Now, now Father, this is, this is the second thing that I ask for. I ask for those that are demonically oppressed. They're driven by fear. They're driven by anxiety. And Lord, we know there's normal fear. There's normal anxiety. We know that there's normal things, but sometimes they, they become so powerful in our lives that they're energized by demons. We pray that every demonic assignment would be cursed and broken in the name of Jesus. Father, we can't just, we can't just talk online forever kingdom of God come kingdom of God come wherever we are set the captive free bound by lust bound by alcohol bound by drugs bound by unforgiveness bound by bitterness the list goes on and on whatever is demonic in our lives set us free silence that voice and we cast those spirits away in the name of Jesus. Father, for those that are just struggling, Pastor, I need a job. I need help. I've got this need. I've got that need. Lord, those things are so important to us, and that makes them so important to you. Father, would you begin to move in our lives? Would you begin to arrange circumstances Give us divine appointments to make connections that we need. Father, set us free. And I want to pray one more thing before we go, especially for our children. For our children. From newborns to college students. Let this begin the dawning of a season of awareness of God's involvement in their life. I pray that our ceiling, our highest that we've attained, will become the floor for our children. Pour out your rain on, your, on our sons and our daughters, our grandchildren. Pour out your spirit on all flesh. Okay, Lord, this, this day, this day, this day, right now, typically the lowest attended Sunday in the year, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. On this day, begin to rain. Begin to rain. Begin to pour out the Holy Spirit. Begin to, to just lift us. We may not even know what happened, but take us from where we've lived to where we're going to live. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we've asked you for four and a half years to, to wake up the church and we believe you're waking us. We believe you're, rise, you're raising up a remnant that are saying afresh and anew, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 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 As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. 
we will serve the Lord. Guys, I love you. See you next Sunday. See you Wednesday. Those of you that can come, stay in his presence as long as you like. He's doing something new. God bless you.